0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of pediatric osteomyelitis from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Pediatric osteomyelitis is most often the result of hematogenous seeding of bacteria to the metaphyseal region of bone. Treatment is usually antibiotics with or without surgical drainage. With respect to the epidemiology, the incidence of pediatric osteomyelitis is 1 in 5,000 children younger than 13 years old. As far as demographics, the mean age for pediatric osteomyelitis is 6.6 years. It's 2.5 times more common in boys. It's more common in the first decade of life due to the rich metaphyseal blood supply and immature immune system. Pediatric osteomyelitis is not uncommon in healthy children. With respect to location, pediatric osteomyelitis is typically metaphyseal via hematogenous seeding. Risk factors include diabetes mellitus, hemoglobinopathy, rheumatoid arthritis, chronic renal disease, immune compromise, and or varicella infection. With respect to pathophysiology, the mechanism of pediatric osteomyelitis is local trauma and bacteremia that leads to increased susceptibility to bacterial seeding of the metaphysis. History of trauma is reported in 30% of patients. As far as microbiology, Staph aureus is the most common organism in all children. Strains of community-acquired MRSA have genes encoding for panton-valentine leukocidin, or PVL cytotoxin. PVL-positive strains are more associated with complex infections, multifocal infections, prolonged fever, abscess, DVT, and sepsis. MRSA is associated with increased risk of DVT and septic emboli. Group B strep is the most common organism in neonates. Kingella kingae is becoming more common in younger age groups. Pseudomonas is associated with direct puncture wounds to the foot. Haemophilus influenza has become much less common with the advent of the haemophilus influenza vaccine. With mycobacteria tuberculosis, children are more likely to have extrapulmonary involvement. Biopsy with stains and culture for acid-fast bacilli is diagnostic. Finally, salmonella is more common in sickle cell patients. With respect to the pathoanatomy of acute osteomyelitis, most cases are hematogenous. Initial bacteremia may occur from a skin lesion, infection, or even trauma from toothbrushing. With respect to microscopic activity, sluggish blood flow in metaphyseal capillaries due to sharp turns results in venous sinusoids, which give bacteria time to lodge in this region. The low pH and low oxygen tension around the growth plate assist in the bacterial growth. Infection occurs after the local bone defenses have been overwhelmed by bacteria. Spread through bone occurs via Haversian and Volkmann canal systems. Purulence develops in conjunction with osteoblast necrosis, osteoclast activation, the release of inflammatory mediators, and blood vessel thrombosis. With respect to macroscopic activity, a subperiosteal abscess develops when the purulence breaks through the metaphyseal cortex. Septic arthritis develops when the purulence breaks through an intraarticular metaphyseal cortex, like in the hip, shoulder, elbow, and ankle. Keep in mind that the knee is not included. Again, infants less than 1 year of age can have infection spread across the growth plate via capillaries causing osteomyelitis in the epiphysis and septic arthritis chronic osteomyelitis happens because periosteal elevation deprives the underlying cortical bone of the blood supply, leading to necrotic bone, otherwise known as the sequestrum. Sequestrum is the necrotic bone which has become walled off from its blood supply and can present as a nidus for chronic osteomyelitis. An outer layer of new bone is formed by the periosteum called the involucrum, and again the involucrum is a layer of new bone growth outside existing bone that's seen in osteomyelitis. Chronic abscesses may become surrounded by sclerotic bone and fibrous tissue leading to a Brody's abscess. With respect to the prognosis of pediatric osteomyelitis, mortality decreased from 50% to less than 1% with the development of antibiotics. Now let's talk about some relevant anatomy. With respect to blood supply, the metaphyseal blood capillaries undergo sharp turns prior to entering venous sinusoids, leading to turbulent flow and predisposition of bacterial deposition. As far as the classification of pediatric osteomyelitis, there's acute osteomyelitis, subacute osteomyelitis, and chronic osteomyelitis. And since we just discussed acute and chronic osteomyelitis, let's talk about subacute osteomyelitis. Subacute osteomyelitis is an uncommon infection with bone pain and radiographic changes without systemic symptoms. It's associated with increased host resistance, decreased organism virulence, and or prior antibiotic exposure. As far as the radiographic classification, types 1A and 1B show lucency. Type 2 is a metaphyseal lesion with cortical bone loss. Type 3 is a diaphyseal lesion. Type 4 shows onion skinning type 5 is an epiphyseal lesion, and type 6 is a spinal lesion. With respect to presentation, patients with pediatric osteomyelitis may give a history of limb pain and or recent local infection or trauma. Make sure to obtain immunization history regarding haemophilus influenza and ask about prior antibiotic use as it may mask symptoms. Symptoms of pediatric osteomyelitis may include limp or refusal to bear weight, These patients are generally not toxic appearing, and there may or may not be a fever associated. Physical exam should involve inspection and palpation, which may reveal an edematous, warm, swollen, tender limb. You should also evaluate for point tenderness in the pelvis, spine, or limbs. Finally, check range of motion, which may be restricted due to pain. With respect to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP and lateral of the suspected area. Findings on early films may be normal or show loss of soft tissue planes and soft tissue edema. New periosteal bone formation may be seen after five to seven days. Osteolysis may be seen at 10 to 14 days. Late films at one to two weeks may show metaphyseal rarefaction that is reduction in metaphyseal bone density or possible abscess. CT scans are more helpful later in the disease course to demonstrate bone changes or abscesses. MRI detects abscesses and early marrow as well as soft tissue edema. MRI can assist with decision making when a poor clinical response to antibiotics or surgical drainage is considered. As far as findings of osteomyelitis on MRI, T1 signal will be decreased. T1 with gadolinium signal will be increased and T2 signal will be increased. MRI has 88% to 100% sensitivity and the sensitivity is increased by gadolinium contrast bone scan may be indicated after a non-diagnostic x-ray or if you need to localize pathology in an infant or toddler with a non-focal exam. Technetium 99M can localize the focus of infection and show a multifocal infection. Bone scans have 92% sensitivity for osteomyelitis, and remember a cold bone scan may be associated with more aggressive infections. With respect to studies to get in order to work up pediatric osteomyelitis, Serum labs to get include white blood cell count, CRP, ESR, plasma procalcitonin, bone aspiration, and blood culture. White blood cell count is elevated in 25% of patients and correlates poorly with treatment response. C-reactive protein, or CRP, is elevated in 98% of patients with acute hematogenous osteomyelitis and becomes elevated within 6 hours. CRP is the most sensitive to monitor therapeutic response and declines rapidly as the clinical picture improves. CRP is the best indicator of early treatment success and normalizes within a week. Failure of the C-reactive protein to decline after 48 to 72 hours of treatment should indicate that treatment may need to be altered. ESR is elevated in 90% of patients with osteomyelitis. It rises rapidly and peaks in 3 to 5 days, but declines too slowly to guide treatment. Remember that it's less reliable in neonates and sickle cell patients. Plasma procalcitonin is a new serologic test that rises rapidly with a bacterial infection, but remains low in viral infections and other inflammatory situations. It's elevated in 58% of pediatric osteomyelitis cases. Bone aspiration helps establish a definitive diagnosis. 50% to 70% of affected patients have positive cultures. Blood cultures are positive only 30% to 50% of the time and will likely be negative soon after antibiotics are administered, even if treatment is not progressing satisfactorily. Other studies to work up pediatric osteomyelitis include aspiration as well as biopsy and culture. Aspiration assists in diagnosis and management. It helps guide antibiotic selection when the organism is identified 50% of the time. You can proceed with surgical drainage if pus is aspirated. The technique for aspiration involves a large bore needle which is utilized to aspirate the subperiosteal and intraosseous spaces under fluoroscopic or CT guidance, and you can start antibiotics after aspiration. As far as biopsy and culture, consider this when the diagnosis is not clear, for example in the setting of subacute osteomyelitis and or if you need to rule out malignancy. With respect to treatment for pediatric osteomyelitis, this can be either operative or non-operative. Non-operative treatment involves antibiotic therapy alone. Indications include early disease with no subperiosteal abscess or abscess within the bone. Surgery is not indicated if clinical improvement is obtained within 48 hours. As far as antibiotics, begin with empiric therapy. Generally nafcillin or oxacillin unless there is a high local prevalence of MRSA. Then use clindamycin or vancomycin. The mechanism of action for vancomycin involves binding the D-ala-D-alamoidi in bacterial cell walls. If the gram stain shows gram-negative bacilli, add a third-generation cephalosporin, and then convert to organism-specific antibiotics if the organism is identified. In cases of mycobacterium tuberculosis, treatment for the initial one year is multi-agent antibiotics and rarely surgical debridement due to risk of chronic sinus formation. In general, antibiotic duration is typically IV antibiotics for 4-6 to weeks, however, this is a relatively controversial duration. As far as intravenous versus oral, this is often a case-by-case decision with input from an infectious disease consultation. Operative treatment involves surgical drainage, debridement, and antibiotic therapy. Indications include deep or subperiosteal abscess, failure to respond to antibiotics, and or chronic infection. Contraindications include hemodynamic instability as patients should be stabilized first. However, sometimes operative treatment of the underlying infection helps to stabilize the patient. The surgical technique for a surgical drainage, debridement, and antibiotic therapy focuses on both the soft tissue and the bone. With respect to the soft tissue, evacuate all purulence, debride devitalized tissue, and drill as needed into intraosseous collections. Send the tissue for culture and pathology to rule out neoplasm then close the wound over the drains or pack and return to the OR in 2-3 to days. With respect to bone work, remove the sequestrum in chronic cases. Complications of pediatric osteomyelitis include DVT, meningitis, septic arthritis, growth disturbances and limb length discrepancies from growth plate involvement and or pathologic fractures. DVT is an infrequent complication in children. However, risk factors include a CRP greater than 6, surgical treatment, age greater than 8 years old, and or MRSA. Treatment of DVT is therapeutic anticoagulation. The risk factors for septic arthritis include neonates and bones with intraarticular metaphysis like the hip, shoulder, elbow, and ankle. Again, notice the knee is not included. Treatment for septic arthritis is irrigation and debridement. With respect to growth disturbances and limb length discrepancies from growth plate involvement, Treatment involves observation and possible corrective surgery depending on the severity or projected severity. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. An 8-year-old girl presents to the emergency room with a 4-day history of limp and temperature of 100.7 Fahrenheit. Lab results show a white blood cell count of 13,000, with the reference range being 4,500 to 11,000, a hematocrit of 33%, the reference range being 41 to 50%, and a C-reactive protein of 14 mg per liter, with the reference range being 0.08 to 3.1 mg per liter. MR imaging demonstrates osteomyelitis of the proximal tibia without an abscess. During the workup in the emergency room, the patient became hypotensive. What is the mechanism of action of the empiric antibiotic appropriate for this patient? And the choices are 1. Binding to penicillin-specific binding proteins in the bacterial cell wall. 2. Binding to the D-ALA-D-ALA residues in the bacterial cell wall. 3. Inhibition of bacterial topoisomerase and DNA gyrase. 4. Inhibition of nucleic acid synthesis. And 5. Binding to 30S ribosomal proteins. So the patient described presents with osteomyelitis most likely due to methicillin-resistant staph aureus, or MRSA. Empiric antibiotics for suspected MRSA infections include clindamycin and vancomycin, and vancomycin is recommended for severe infections, particularly with signs of sepsis. The mechanism of action of vancomycin is binding to the D-ala-D-alamoides to inhibit bacterial cell wall synthesis. So the correct answer to this question is 2, binding to the D-ALA-D-ALA residues in the bacterial cell wall. MRSA infections have been increasingly common causes of osteomyelitis and require appropriate antibiotic coverage for proper treatment. MRSA infections can often be more aggressive and progress more rapidly than MSSA infections. Ju et al. describe a clinical prediction algorithm for distinguishing MRSA from MSSA osteomyelitis in children. They report four patient factors, a temperature of greater than 38 degrees Celsius, a white blood cell count of greater than 12,000, hematocrit of less than 34, and CRP of greater than 13 as being associated with MRSA infection. Patients with all four factors are found to have a 92% chance of MRSA infection, 42% for patients with three out of four factors. Copley presents a review of pediatric musculoskeletal infections discussing proper imaging during workup, often involving MRI, and proper antibiotic management after debridement, often parenteral, followed by oral antibiotics. Recommended antibiotics for empiric treatment include ampicillin, sulbactam, and gentamicin for patients less than one month old. Vancomycin and ceftriaxone for those 1 to 3 months old, and clindamycin, vancomycin, or rifampin for other pediatric adolescent patients. The authors note that vancomycin is the antibiotic of choice for suspected sepsis slash severe infection, but clindamycin for less severe cases in areas where methicillin sensitive Staph aureus is more prevalent. So, to quickly go over the incorrect answers, Answer 1 is incorrect, as binding to penicillin-specific binding proteins in the bacterial cell wall describes the mechanism of oxacillin, which would be inadequate in the treatment of MRSA osteomyelitis. Answer 3 is incorrect, as inhibition of bacterial topoisomerase and DNA gyrase describes the mechanism of fluoroquinolone antibiotics. Answer 4 is incorrect as inhibition of nucleic acid synthesis describes the mechanism of metronidazole. And answer 5 is incorrect as binding to the 30S ribosomal proteins describes the mechanism of aminoglycoside antibiotics. The mechanism of clindamycin involves inhibition at the 50S subunit of the ribosome. Next question. In children, a diagnosis of osteomyelitis with concomitant deep venous thrombosis has a high association with which causative organism, and the choices are 1, Kingella kingae, 2, Mycobacterium tuberculosis, 3, Methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus, 4, Methicillin-sensitive staphylococcus aureus, and 5, Salmonella. So DVT in association with musculoskeletal infection is most likely caused by methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA, which is the correct answer to this question. Risk factors for DVT in the pediatric population include age older than 8 years old, a CRP of greater than 6 mg per liter, presence of MRSA-associated infection, as well as a need for surgical intervention. While a malignant process remains on the differential, With a relatively acute onset of presentation, fever, and the associated positive blood cultures, infection, specifically osteomyelitis, remains at the top of the differential. Holmig et al. retrospectively assessed 212 children with a diagnosis of osteomyelitis over a two-year period. 11 of the children had both DVT and osteomyelitis when compared to the non-DVT group, had significantly higher CRP of greater than 6 mg per liter, were older, greater than 8 years old, and had a higher rate of MRSA as the causative agent, that was 73% versus 24%. Gonzalez et al. prospectively followed 9 children with concomitant DVT and MRSA-associated osteomyelitis. Notable associations were increased ICU admissions, invasive procedures, and a propensity to cause septic emboli. Also, the most common location for DVT was the femoral vein with extension into the popliteal system. Next question. Sequestrum is defined as which of the following? And the choices are 1. Reactive bone in acute osteomyelitis, 2. Reactive bone in chronic osteomyelitis, three, necrotic bone providing a nidus for infection in chronic osteomyelitis, four, healthy bone adjacent to chronic osteomyelitis, and five, healthy bone adjacent to acute osteomyelitis. So sequestrum is defined as the necrotic bone which has become walled off or sequestered from its blood supply and can present as a nidus for chronic osteomyelitis. Involucrum is a layer of new bone growth outside existing bone seen in osteomyelitis. In chronic osteomyelitis, the periosteum is elevated away from the cortical bone by the accumulation of pus leaking from the sequestrum. New bone develops from the periosteum, forming the involucrum. So the correct answer to this question is 3. A sequestrum is defined as a necrotic bone providing a nidus for infection in chronic osteomyelitis next question in a child with acute hematogenous osteomyelitis what test is most likely to be abnormal and the choices are one white blood cell count two blood culture three bone culture four thyroid function test and five c-reactive protein so acute hematogenous osteomyelitis affects one in five thousand children and historically prior to antibiotics that is Nearly half died due to the disease. Fortunately, the mortality rate is much lower today, at less than 1%, but prompt diagnosis and treatment is critical to decrease the morbidity of this disease. Often, many of the laboratory values may not be elevated, and cultures may not be positive. In fact, the white blood cell count and cultures, even bone cultures, are positive less than half of the time. The erythrocyte sedimentation rate is positive over 90% of the time and often highly elevated but does not peak for 3-5 to days. The C-reactive protein, however, is elevated in 98% of patients with acute hematogenous osteomyelitis and decreases quickly after appropriate antibiotic therapy. The differential diagnosis of acute hematogenous osteomyelitis is long and includes bony tumors and leukemia which should be considered, especially if the child fails to respond to appropriate treatment. But the correct answer to this question is 5. C-reactive protein. Next question. You were asked to consult on a 4-day-old neonate admitted because of failure to thrive. She has swelling of her left shoulder. Examination reveals limited motion of her hips and the left shoulder. Radiographs of the shoulder and pelvis are negative. Laboratory studies show a white blood cell count of 24,000 an erythrocyte sedimentation rate of 50 per hour, and a C-reactive protein is 16.4. What is the next most appropriate step in management? And the choices are 1. Ultrasound of the hip and shoulder, 2. Bone scan, 3. MRI of the shoulder, 4. Pavlik harness, and 5. Excision and drainage. So ultrasound of both the hip and the shoulder can show the presence of septic arthritis and osteomyelitis. Multiple sites of infection are common in neonates. A bone scan can be used to identify other areas of involvement, but the correct answer to this question is 1. Ultrasound of the hip and shoulder. Next question. A 2-year-old girl has a 2-day history of fever and refuses to move her left shoulder following varicella. Laboratory studies show an erythrocyte sedimentation rate of 75 mm per hour and a peripheral white blood cell count of 18,000. What is the most common organism in this scenario? And the choices are 1. Kingella kingae, 2. Group A beta-hemolytic streptococcus, 3. Group B streptococcus, 4. Staph epidermidis, and 5. Staph aureus. So this is kind of a tough question. The most common bacterial etiologic agent following a varicella infection is actually Group A beta-hemolytic streptococcus. The other organisms are much less common, so this is something that you just have to know. Staph aureus is obviously the most common bone infection organism, but for this question was the most common wrong answer. Staphylococcus epidermidis is increasingly a bone infection organism. Group B streptococcus occurs more commonly in newborns, and Kingella kingae is a common joint pathogen, but is not as common following varicella. So again, the correct answer to this question is 2, group A beta hemolytic streptococcus after a varicella infection. Next question, in which of the following patients with osteomyelitis of the tibia is surgical debridement the next best step in treatment? And the choices are 1, a 9-year-old girl with new onset pain and fever, 2, a 7-year-old lethargic boy with a CRP of 20 that does not decline after a week of napcillin and vancomycin, 3, a 7-year-old girl with 3 days of pain, fever, and a white blood cell count of 21,000 who presents to the ER. 4, an 8-year-old boy whose pain and fever have decreased after 24 hours of ampicillin. 5, an 8-year-old lethargic girl with a white blood cell count of 21,000 and a CRP of 9 after 24 hours of gentamicin. So surgery is indicated in scenario 2, as the patient has failed to respond to appropriate antibiotic treatment for osteomyelitis. Other surgical indications for osteomyelitis are the aspiration of pus from bone and the presence of a subperiosteal abscess. In the review by Song and Sloboda the authors note that Staph aureus accounts for greater than 90% of osteomyelitis in children of all age groups. The authors recommend three to four weeks of antibiotics while following the response to therapy with CRP levels. The patients in scenarios one and three have not had a trial of antibiotic treatment, thus surgery is not yet indicated. The patient in scenario four is clinically improving after 24 hours of antibiotics, presumably a sensitive strain. And the patient in scenario five has not yet failed appropriate antibiotic treatment as gentamicin does not effectively treat gram-positive organisms such as staph aureus. So again, the correct answer to this question is two, Surgical debridement is the next best step for a seven-year-old lethargic boy with a CRP of 20 milligrams per liter that does not decline after a week of napcillin and vancomycin. Next question, septic arthritis in pediatric patients may occur secondary to direct intraarticular spread from metaphyseal osteomyelitis. This can occur in all of the following joints except, and the choices are one, the hip, two, the ankle, three, the shoulder, four, the elbow, and five, the knee. So bones with an intraarticular metaphysis are the proximal humerus, proximal radius, proximal femur, and distal fibula slash tibia. This makes the shoulder, elbow, hip, and ankle potential sources of septic arthritis secondary to direct metaphyseal spread of osteomyelitis. The metaphysis of the knee is extra-articular, and as such, proximal tibial or distal femur osteomyelitis does not routinely spread to the knee. So anyway, the correct answer to this question is 5. The knee, as septic arthritis in pediatric patients secondary to direct intra-articular spread from metaphyseal osteomyelitis does not spread to the knee, unlike the other joints listed. And the final question for this topic... A six-year-old boy develops tenderness at the right heel and avoids putting weight on the right extremity after stepping on a nail two weeks ago while wearing tennis shoes. His mother notes that he has had a fever of 39 degrees Celsius. Calcaneal osteomyelitis caused by a puncture wound has an increased rate of which of the following compared to hematogenous osteomyelitis? And the choices are 1. Presence of group A streptococcus infection, 2. Presence of coliforms infection, 3. Presence of hemophilus infection, 4. Presence of pseudomonas infection, and 5. Presence of group B strep infection. So calcaneal osteomyelitis in children can occur via hematogenous seeding or direct puncture wounds. There are two types of pediatric hematogenous osteomyelitis, and those are acute and subacute hematogenous osteomyelitis. The most common organism identified is Staph aureus, according to Blythe et al., and is found in 70% of the cases. The article by Karwowska et al. reviewed 146 osteomyelitis cases and noted that tenderness was the most common sign, while fever and decreased limb use were the most common symptoms. Miller's review states that group A strep and coliforms were less common organisms, and with recent immunization programs, haemophilus influenza is almost eradicated as an osteomyelitis etiology. However, the etiology of calcaneal osteomyelitis due to puncture wounds is different. The article by Puffenbarger et al. found a 100% incidence of pseudomonas infection in their calcaneal osteomyelitis cases caused by puncture wounds, as in this patient's case. So the correct answer to this question is four, presence of pseudomonas infection. That's all for this review about pediatric osteomyelitis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes.